There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, ytterbium, all of you listening from New Zealand to the Arctic. Today, unfortunately, we are going to have to talk a little bit about nuclear reactions because of the events that are going on in the world. But uh, before we get around to that, uh, I'm George Schwartz. I direct McGill's Office for Science and Society, where we have a mandate to separate sense from nonsense. My background is chemistry. Uh, and uh, as you know, my view is that chemistry is the central science that ties all the others together. And if you have a good feel for what chemicals can and cannot do, you get a good idea of what can and cannot happen in the world. Before we get into nuclear reactions, let me launch a couple of questions for you. It dates back to the 16th century, and Bill Gates bought it in 1994 for $30.8 million. What is it? If you know the answer to that question, you give us a call at 514-790-0800, which is also the number you can call with any other comment or questions. You can also text the same to 514-800. The second question. When launched in 1858, the SS Great Eastern was the largest ship ever built. It was capable of carrying 4,000 passengers. It had a giant paddle wheel, well, actually two of them, powered by steam made by coal, and there were also large four masts to have sails on them. In 1856, for a crossing of the Atlantic, many of the ship's salons and rooms were emptied to make room for the cargo she was carrying. What was that cargo? So there's the two questions. What did Bill Gates buy in 1994 for $30.8 million? That dates back to the 16th century. And why was the Great Eastern in 1858 or in 1856? It was launched in 1858 and then, sorry, in 1865, it had to be refitted. And why was it refitted uh, in order to carry some cargo. They had to empty its salons and some rooms. Question is, what was that cargo? 514-790-0800. Tragic events, of course, in, uh, in the Ukraine and uh, the number of peoples being displaced is, is just unbelievable. But of course, what is also frightening is the nuclear saber rattling that is going on with uh, Putin saying that the sanctions actually ten are tantamount to a declaration of war. And uh, he, of course, has also mentioned the Russia's uh, nuclear capabilities. But a lot of people don't really know what this means. What, what does the term nuclear mean in this, this context? So let me give you uh, the background story here. And it is, of course, the background story of the Manhattan Project. Let's get started. Enrico Fermi looked on with awe as the mushroom cloud rose into the early morning sky, set ablaze by the blinding orange fireball. The world had never seen anything like it. He realized that for better or worse, on that 16th day of July 1945, in the desert of New Mexico, a new age had dawned. 
Seven years earlier, Fermi had traveled to Stockholm to receive the Nobel Prize in Physics. He got that for his demonstrations of the existence of new radioactive elements produced by neutron irradiation and for his related discovery of nuclear reactions brought about by slow neutrons. Concerned about the rising tide of anti-Semitism in Italy, Fermi and his Jewish wife decided to emigrate to the U.S. instead of returning to their homeland. America, of course, was thrilled to welcome the scientists who had laid the groundwork for nuclear fission with its bombardment of uranium atoms with neutrons. Well, why was nuclear fission so important? Because it was capable of generating a tremendous amount of heat in a fraction of a second. The simple demonstration or explanation of an explosion is a sudden going away of things from the place where they have been. That's what an explosion is. And it is caused by the rapid movement of air. When a material explodes, it heats up the air and hot air rises. And of course, it will do so very quickly as a tremendous amount of heat is generated. And it is the movement of that hot air, which we understand as an explosion. In a nuclear fission reaction, that heat is tremendous and it causes extremely, extremely rapid movement of air, destroying everything in its path. On top of that is the problem that such reactions also release radioactive materials that of course can cause all kinds of health problems. Anyway, by the time that Fermi came to America, it had become clear that only uranium-235, which is one of the two naturally occurring isotopes of uranium, could be split. That is, could be bombarded by neutrons and be broken up, and that is the fission reaction. Fission means to break up. And the breaking up of uranium is what releases the heat. The trouble was that there was not an abundance of uranium-235. Its natural abundance is only about 0.7% and very difficult to separate it out from most of the naturally occurring uranium, which is the uranium-238 isotope. And uh, that one cannot be used in, uh, to manufacture the original kind of, uh, of nuclear uh, bomb. So the question at first was, how do you separate the needed uranium-235 from the 238? And, uh, Fermi was able to work out ways of, of doing that. And he also showed that if the bombarding neutrons could be slowed down, they would um, uh, function better in terms of triggering the nuclear reaction. Now, it turns out that uh, uh, this was not a simple uh, concept to bring to reality. And this is what really started the Manhattan uh, Project, uh, which uh, focused on, on getting the uh, right type of, of uranium and uh, putting it into a bomb and uh, trigger a reaction with uh, slow-moving neutrons. And this is what Fermi was essentially able to, to do. He solved these, uh, these problems. And... Uh, in uh, 1945, the bomb was ready to be uh, tested. The original work for uh, testing the reactions, the original nuclear reactor was in Chicago, 
And uh, as you probably know, because so many stories about this, the original nuclear pie was built in a, under the stands of a stadium in, in Chicago, which was pretty secret uh, operation uh, at that time. And uh, a facility to produce enough U-235 for a bomb was built at, at breakneck speed, and that was in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. At the same time, a plant at Hanford, Washington, was designed to produce another fissionable isotope, and that was plutonium-239. Well, it turned out that uranium-238, which is the most widely seen isotope of uranium, was not totally useless after all, because on absorbing neutrons, it formed plutonium. And plutonium uh, was uh, uh, very useful in making the second kind of, uh, of uh, atom bomb because plutonium could also uh, be used. Anyway, the bomb assembled at Los Alamos in New Mexico and tested in 1945 at the Trinity site was in fact a plutonium device. It was codenamed Gadget. It consisted of a subcritical sphere of plutonium-239 surrounded by a packing of high explosives. When the explosives were detonated, the plutonium was compressed into a critical mass while being sub at the same time subjected to neutrons released from uh, an initiator made of polonium beryllium. And this was the prototype for the bomb dropped on Nagasaki. So this reaction, this nuclear reaction, just produced a tremendous amount of, of heat. It blasted the air around it. And it created this, this rapid movement of air that caused all the destruction. But at the same time, of course, it also released a variety of uh, the, the products of radioactivity, uh, which uh, can cause cancer, terrible burns, uh, etc. And uh, the Hiroshima bomb, uh, which was a U-235 bomb, was never tested before it was uh, dropped on, uh, on Hiroshima. And, uh, of course, we know that it worked. The uh, uh, effects were devastating. But both of these bombs, the one bombed on Nagasaki and one on Hiroshima, were nothing compared to the weaponry that is available today. And, of course, both Russia and the U.S. and, of course, uh, India, Pakistan, France, England, and probably Israel have enough nuclear weapons to destroy the world many times over. So when we have a situation where we have one apparent madman sitting in Moscow with a finger on that uh, button, we are looking at a potentially catastrophic uh, situation. So there's a little bit of background for you on uh, how the bomb came to, to be. And uh, of course, there's a tremendous amount of more detail uh, available about that that you may want to to look up but that's the story in a nutshell well i need answers to my questions what did Bill Gates buy in 1994 for $30.8 million? Whatever he bought dates back to the 16th century. Give us a call, 514-790-0800 or text to 514-800. Second question. In 1868, the then world's largest ship, the SS 
Great Eastern had to be refitted. Its uh, large salons and rooms were emptied to make room for the cargo she was about to carry. What was the cargo the Great Eastern was going to carry in 1868? Again, 514-790-0800. All right, before we leave this whole nuclear uh, uh, situation, uh, you probably heard that people in Europe are lining up to buy tablets of potassium iodide. And the question is, why? The last time we heard about this was, uh, again, all about Ukraine, but that takes us back to Chernobyl. An accident at a nuclear reactor can release radioactive substances into the environment. Radioactive iodide is of particular concern because it can be inhaled or ingested from contaminated vegetation and dairy products or meat. Iodide concentrates in the thyroid gland, and the radioactive variety emits beta particles and gamma rays, which can damage surrounding tissue and can cause cancer. If there is a concern about exposure to radioactive iodide, regular potassium iodide can be orally administered. It will be absorbed within an hour and concentrate in the thyroid gland, preventing any further uptake of iodide by that gland. Taken within 12 hours before exposure, potassium iodide can almost completely prevent radioactive iodide from entering the thyroid. There is some protection also if taken within 24 hours of exposure, but not if more than 24 hours have passed. Dosage is also important, obviously. An adult requires about 130 milligrams a day, children about half that. The dangers of radioactive iodide exposure, particularly in children, were dramatically demonstrated after the Chernobyl accident that was in 1986. Within four years, there was an up to 100-fold increase in thyroid cancer in children in the areas covered by the radioactive plume. Poland, where potassium iodide tablets were immediately distributed to some 11 million children and 7 million adults after the accident, served as a remarkable contrast to the Ukraine situation. Virtually no increase in thyroid cancer was observed. So potassium iodide can work, but there's a but. It has to be given at the right dose and at the right time. And of course, uh, we also have to understand in the current situation here that if there should be the release of any kind of radioactivity, it doesn't know any borders. So it will drift back towards as the, to the same extent that it starts drifting towards the West. So uh, obviously, uh, they also have to be concerned about the release of any kind of radioactive uh, substance. And uh, that's why the insanity of bombarding that nuclear reactor uh, this uh, past week uh, should be uh, highlighted even uh, uh, further. All right. Uh, Frank apparently has an answer. Frank. Yes. Hi. Hi. The, yeah, the answer is the uh, Leonardo da Vinci's Codex. Exactly. So 30.8 million is is no chump change, I I think, even for Bill Gates. And that is what he paid for da Vinci's notebook, which was written sometime between 1506 and 1510. Uh, Da Vinci, of course, was an absolutely remarkable man. You know, I mean, people just associate him with the the Mona Lisa. 
Uh, but uh, he did so much more than that. Uh, he was one of the pioneers of human dissection. He dissected some 30 corpses. Uh, he, um, of course, did that so that he could very accurately uh, replicate musculature in his paintings. He uh, wrote in mirror writing, that is, he wrote backwards so that it could be only read in a mirror. He was a vegetarian. Uh, he famously said, if you are, as you have described yourself, the king of the animals, why do you help other animals only so that they may be able to give you their young in order to gratify your plate? One of the first statements on behalf of vegetarianism. And he even had a recipe for gray hair. He said to take uh, gray hair, take nuts and boil them in lye and immerse the comb in it, then comb the hair and let it dry in the sun. And there's something to that because uh, nuts can, in fact, release a, a natural dye. So he was a remarkable man. And uh, I'm not sure where Bill Gates keeps his uh, copy of Da Vinci's uh, notebook, uh, but uh, I'm sure that uh, it's in a very safe place given its, uh, its value. So thanks very much for answering that uh, question. And Thank you. We still have the, we still have the uh, question about the Great Eastern, and maybe John has that answer. John? Yes, the Great Eastern was refitted to lay out the first transatlantic cable. Uh, exactly. Exactly. It, that is why it had to be refitted, because that cargo was very large. And uh, therein lies, of course, an absolutely fascinating story, because before the transatlantic cable was successfully laid, that was in, in uh, uh, finally in, in 1868, before that, the only way that you could get message across the, the ocean was by ship, and that would take about two weeks. The idea to lay a telegraph cable uh, between uh, Ireland and Newfoundland, uh, that uh, idea was launched in the early 1850s, and it was actually tried. Uh, two ships, the Agamemnon and the Niagara, uh, former battleships met in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. They each had a cable and they would go in the opposite directions because neither one of these was uh, equipped to carry all the cable needed for crossing the Atlantic. So they met in the middle and uh, they joined the cable and then they sailed in the two different directions. Uh, it worked, actually, but the cable uh, only uh, lasted for a few weeks because uh, in attempting to increase the speed by which telegraph messages were sent across it, uh, it burned, burned out. And uh, it took uh, another uh, almost 10 years until the Great Eastern was uh, outfitted. Its first attempt failed also, but on the second attempt, it was able to... Uh, steam across the Atlantic and lay the cable. And uh, the first uh, message was between Queen Victoria and President James Buchanan congratulating each other on this great scientific uh, achievement. Uh, Queen Victoria's message was 98 words, and believe it or not, it took 16 hours to send. But nevertheless, this was a monumental achievement. And the next morning, a grand salute of a hundred guns resounded in New York City. There were flags everywhere. Bells of the churches were rung. And at night, the city was illuminated. This was a, a great event. Uh, 
within a few years, there were many other cables that were laid not only across the Atlantic, but across other bodies of, of water uh, as well. And uh, pretty soon they were transmitting about eight words a minute by, uh, by telegraph. But it took a long time until a telephone cable was laid. That was in 1956. That was the first time you could make telephone calls across the, uh, the ocean. Now, you would think that this story of the cables is just of historical interest, but you would be very wrong. There are around 380 underwater cables today operating around the world, spanning a length of over 1.2 million kilometers. And these cables are home to the internet. We think that the internet is all in the cloud. No, most of the internet is underwater. This is how information is transmitted. The underwater cables are the invisible force driving the modern internet. It's uh, all via optical fibers, and uh, those transmit data extremely, extremely quickly. And those cables are extremely scientifically designed and very complicated. The optical fibers are surrounded by a layer of petroleum jelly. Then they're placed in an aluminum or copper tube. Then there's a layer of polycarbonate. Then another aluminum barrier. Then steel wires. Then mylar tape. And all of this is coated in polyethylene. It takes about two years to lay a cable across the ocean. It's a tremendous uh, accomplishment. But there is risk. Because if these cables are somehow damaged, that would destroy the internet messaging across those cables. And there's worry that the Russians are capable of doing that. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. Tomorrow, being the first Monday of, of March, uh, is my time for presentation at the Cote St. Luke Public Library, the Eleanor London Public Library. But of course, because of COVID, we're still doing that online, which means that no matter where you are, you can access it. And that's at two o'clock tomorrow. I'll be talking about the history of medicine. And uh, to join us, just go to the Eleanor London Public Library website and uh, uh, you'll see the information there on uh, on the link. It's a Zoom presentation and uh, it's almost better than being there because you don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to brave the weather. You can just sit and watch and listen. So that's tomorrow, the history of, of medicine. Our questions were answered. So, of course, I will jettison a couple more your way. What happened at Sutter's Mill in 1848? And who is said to have tried to repel the ships of invading Romans in 214 BC with mirrors? So there's the two questions. What happened at Sutter's Mill in 1848 and 214 BC? Who supposedly tried to repel the ships of Roman invaders with mirrors. Give us a call, 514-790-800, or you can text at 514-800. I think William has a question. 
Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Dr. Schwartz. I have a Hi. question about COVID-19. What happens when you destroy the uh, protein spikes? What do you mean when you destroy them? Well, you see the spikes are broken off from the virus. What, besides not being able to reproduce, what else is there? Does it destroy the virus or? Well, it would destroy the virus because the virus would not be able to enter a cell. The virus can only replicate inside of a cell. So if it cannot enter a cell, then essentially it stops right there. It cannot reproduce. I mean, the whole idea, the whole idea behind the vaccines is to block the spike protein from being able to engage with the ACE2 receptor, which is, you know, sort of acts like the, the, the lock and the spike protein is the key. But yes, I mean, if, if you can in some way destroy the spike protein on the virus, that that would do it because then it cannot get into a cell. But there's no way to do that. Okay, thanks. All right, uh, let me uh, uh, switch to something else for a moment. Again, historically. All science is either physics or stamp collecting. That quote, which is repeated in many articles and many books, is attributed to Ernest Rutherford, who is widely recognized as the father of nuclear physics. But you know what? The truth is there's little evidence that he ever said it because the first time that we hear of this quote is uh, in a book by John Bernal in 1939, two years after Rutherford's death. And uh, in that book, uh, the author just makes sort of the casual comment that Rutherford used to divide science into physics and stamp collecting. Of course, there's also the question of what Rutherford meant if he did indeed utter such an opinion. And the quote is often interpreted as denigrating other sciences and suggesting that physics is the only legitimate pursuit. Since his own Nobel Prize, awarded in 1908, was in fact in chemistry, and since his main collaborator at McGill in the radioactivity experiments for which he received the Nobel Prize was Frederick Soddy, who was also a chemist, it is extremely unlikely that Rutherford would have demeaned the other sciences. But uh, Rutherford, of course, was uh, an extremely interesting personality and perhaps the greatest experimentalist since Michael Faraday. He was born in New Zealand, uh, but uh, of course, uh, we first hear of him uh, here in Canada when he came to McGill as a, as a professor. And it was here at McGill that he identified radioactivity as what it is, the spontaneous disintegration of unstable atoms as they emit energy and smaller particles. And he's the one who identified this energy as, as gamma radiation and the particles as beta and alpha radiation. And uh, he uh, really uh, laid the foundations of, of, uh, of nuclear physics. And uh, he went from McGill uh, to England to University of Manchester. And it really was there that Rutherford carried out his most famous studies not the ones for which he got the Nobel Prize. He got the Nobel Prize for his studies on radioactivity, which indeed was carried out at McGill. But uh, it was at the University of Manchester, in collaboration with Hans Geiger and Ernest Marsden, 
that he carried out the famous gold foil experiment, which really established the structure of the atom as we know it. Uh, as early as the fifth century BC, Greek philosophers, Leucippus and Democritus had introduced the idea that all matter is composed of uniform, solid, hard, incompressible and indestructible atomos, as they call them. And that's from the Greek word for indivisible. Unfortunately, though Aristotle, who was the most influential Greek philosopher, did not believe in atoms. And so the concept lay dormant until the atomic theory was resuscitated by John Dalton in the early years of the 19th century. Some hundred years later, J.J. Thompson, under whom Rutherford actually had studied, discovered the electron and formulated the plum pudding model that described atoms as uniform spheres of positive charged matter in which electrons were embedded very much like plums in a pudding. And then along came Rutherford's classic experiment, which is described in every introductory chemistry and physics text. A thin piece of gold foil was exposed to a barrage of alpha particles emitted by the radioactive decay of radon. That's a gas that Rutherford had previously identified as a new element. There was a phosphorescent screen behind the gold foil, and the screen flashed wherever it was struck by an alpha particle. Now, most of these particles passed right through the gold foil, but some bounced back. An astounded Rutherford compared this to having a bullet fired at a piece of tissue paper rebounding. This could only happen, he deduced, if the Thomson model was wrong and gold atoms were mostly empty space, except for a tiny, dense, positively charged mass that repelled the positively charged alpha particles. That mass came to be called the nucleus and was surrounded by empty space through which electrons circulated. And Rutherford's theory of atomic structure was essentially correct, although further refinements have shown that the electrons do not circulate randomly about the nucleus, but they're assigned to certain restricted energy levels. In 1971, New Zealand issued two stamps to commemorate the 100th anniversary of Rutherford's birth. One of these accurately depicts the gold foil experiment, but the other shows a reaction in which nitrogen combines with an alpha particle to form an atom of oxygen and one of hydrogen. This is a reaction that Rutherford actually never carried out. It was done by uh, Patrick Blackett, working years later, in, indeed in the same laboratory as, as uh, uh, Rutherford was at Cambridge University. But this is just a mistake on that New, New Zealand stamp because Rutherford never carried out that reaction. Of course, he, he, he deserves accolades for everything that he did, but he did not carry out that transmutation reaction. And um, he was uh, wrongly deemed to be the, the uh, first modern alchemist who transformed one element into another. He did not do that. While he did not carry out that transformation, he did comment on another one. In his acceptance speech for the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, Rutherford quipped that, I have observed many transformations while working with radioactive materials, but none as rapid as my own from physicist to chemist because, of course, he always thought of himself as a physicist. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We are born to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. 
What happened at Sutter's Mill in 1848? If you know the answer to that question, you give us a call, 514-790-0800, or text at 514-800. Also, who is said to have tried to repel the ships of invading Romans in 214 BC with mirrors of all things? So just uh, uh, before the, the break, I was talking about stamps. And uh, stamps commemorating some aspect of chemistry are not rare. Many countries have issued stamps honoring landmark achievements by Marie and Pierre Curie, Fritz Haber, Linus Pauling, uh, Melvin Calvin, Justus von Liebig, Pasteur, Einstein, Nobel, Robert Koch, Paracelsus, Mendeleev, many, many others. Uh, I'm not sure who has been portrayed on stamps the most often. Uh, I, I think maybe uh, Marie Curie is, is the one. Mendeleev also has been on many stamps for many countries. And uh, there are stamps also that show molecular structures of famous compounds like vitamin C, penicillin, DNA, aniline. And uh, there are many, many stamps illustrating various types of laboratory glassware. Uh, however, stamps that show an actual chemical reaction are rare. Uh, I, I only know of six, actually, where the stamp actually shows a chemical reaction. One of the ones I talked about, which was the reaction shown on the Rutherford stamp, which is really a mistake because Rutherford never carried out that, that reaction. But perhaps the most famous stamp illustrating a chemical reaction was issued by West Germany in 1982. Co commemorate the 100th anniversary of the death of Friedrich Wöhler, commonly recognized as the father of modern organic chemistry. In 1828, Wöhler carried out a chemical reaction that launched the field of organic chemistry as we know it today. It is that reaction, the conversion of ammonium cyanate into urea that is depicted on the stamp along with the molecular structure of urea. Wooler, who had given up medicine in favor of chemistry, smart man, combined solutions of silver cyanate and ammonium chloride expecting to form ammonium cyanate. Much to his surprise, although the product formed had the same chemical makeup, it behaved differently as ammonium cyanate. It had a different melting point and decomposed readily with heat. This substance turned out to be urea the atoms that made up ammonium cyanate had rearranged themselves to form a substance that had previously only been found in urine. At the time, it was assumed that such chemicals produced by biological systems could not be replicated in the lab because their synthesis required some sort of vital force that could only be supplied by nature. Such substances were said to be organic since they were thought to be made only by the body's organs, and organic chemistry referred to the chemistry of substances that derive from living things. All other substances, metals, minerals, were said to be inorganic. But Wooler's synthesis of urea in 1828 from an inorganic material finally put that idea to rest. After that, the term organic came to be applied to the chemistry of carbon compounds. After Wooler realized that he had made urea from inorganic substances. He excitedly wrote to his mentor, the Swedish chemist Berzelius, I cannot, so to say, hold my chemical water and must tell you that I can make urea without thereby needing to have kidneys of an animal, be it human or a dog. So that stamp uh, issued by Germany 
dedicated to the anniversary of uh, Wooler's uh, death uh, certainly deserves uh, the chemical reaction that is depicted uh, on it. All right. Uh, I think we do have some uh, answers. Uh, uh, Ron, I think, has an answer. How you doing? Okay. Uh, after I answer the question, can I pose a question to you, please? Of course. Okay. I believe it was Socrates. No, it was not Socrates. Okay. And gold was discovered at Fort Sumter. This is true. Uh, Sutter's Mill in 1848. Uh, that was a water-powered sawmill on the bank of the South Fork American River in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada in California. And it was named after its owner, who was John Sutter. And a worker uh, at the, the mill, James Marshall, found gold in 1848, and that began the California gold rush. All right, what's your question? Last week, you spoke of homeopathy. Basically extreme dilution to effect efficacy. Could you compare or contrast that phenomena with the phenomena of electron entanglement? No. <laughs> but I both cannot. of them are Elect phenomena. Yeah. They're phenomena. They're phenomena. I mean, there are many, many phenomena in the world. It doesn't mean that they're related. Could be. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure what you know what you're driving at. Well, electron entanglement shocked me. I mean, the concept is you have an electron somewhere here on Earth, and there's a partner of it somewhere way out in the cosmos, and they're somehow related. You know. That's uh, well, I, I, yeah, I don't know enough about electron entanglement to to comment on it. I'll I'll, I'll look into it. It's not Please. something that I've. Uh... Do I win a book or a car or a door? I will look into electron entanglement. Okay. Okay. All right. Please I'll do. see. I'll see what I can find out by uh, next next week. All right. But the the uh, uh, Socrates answer was uh, is not a correct one. Uh, although not too far off, the answer to that uh, the answer to that question is actually Archimedes, and uh, uh, the story is that Archimedes set up a network of bronze mirrors to focus the rays of the sun on uh, Roman ships, and that uh, you know these ships that were attacking uh, uh, the city of Syracuse at that time, two fifteen B.C were set afire by, by the mirrors. Not likely that this is true. In fact, believe it or not, that the excellent TV program, The Mythbusters, uh, actually put this to, to a test. And they had the bronze mirrors that they polished uh, uh, extremely well, because, of course, back in the days of, of Archimedes, they would not have had real mirrors. So it was just pieces of metal that were polished until they were reflective. And the, the Mythbusters uh, uh, set this up under, you know, really ideal conditions and uh, bright sun, and they managed to focus the light onto, uh, onto a ship made, made to be something like a Roman galleon. And this death ray, as you know, it was supposed to be, managed to smolder a bit of the wood on the ship and to start the small fire, certainly not to set the ship ablaze. 
And uh, this was under perfect conditions where these mirrors were lined up exactly to reflect the rays of the sun onto one particular little spot. This is not something that uh, Archimedes uh, uh, could have done. So that story is likely to be apocryphal. Uh, of course, uh, this is not to, to detract from Archimedes's other accomplishments, which were legendary. Uh, of course, his principle, uh, which basically explained why ships float. And uh, uh, also, of course, his classic experiment uh, to determine that a crown that had been made by a goldsmith for King Hero of Syracuse was not pure gold because when he sat down in a bathtub, he realized that the amount of volume displaced was equal to whatever volume was immersed in the water. And uh, so he tested the crown, he measured the amount of uh, uh, water displaced, he weighed the crown, calculated its density, compared that to the density of gold, and uh, determined that uh, it was not pure gold. So Archimedes did some very, very interesting things but it is very unlikely that he set fire to the Roman fleet by mirrors. And we have run smack out of time. That's it for today. I hope that we've educated you and uh, maybe entertained you somewhat as well. We will be back same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>